0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Andrea Pitts, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, thank you. Will Will you start by telling us a bit about yourself and your background as a philosopher, and how you came to write this book? Um, how it was informed by prior work, and how you came to center Anzaldúa in your thinking? Yeah. So, so first,
0: yes. Hi, Sarah. It's a it's a real pleasure to speak with you here on the New Books Network. Um, I'm a big fan of the series and have learned a lot from these interviews, so I really appreciate the work that you all are doing to make these podcasts available, Um, and I want to first thank you for that work um, and for this invitation to chat today. Um, Also, as an aside, it's always nice to connect with you, Sarah, in particular, (laughs) given our previous connections, So, um, so full disclosure to your listeners, Sarah and I attended grad school together and I think first met maybe like over 10 years ago? Um, that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so always great to connect with you, Sarah. So um, okay, so regarding my background and interest for this book, um, I really began reading Ansaldúa before I came to philosophy. So my interest in her work, uh, I think somewhat predates my training as a philosopher. So I was one of those young people who Picked up the edited collection by Sheree Moraga and Gloria Saldua, This Bridge Called My Back, and was just totally transformed by it. So um, in particular, I remember being assigned chapters from that collection, um, I think in one of my women's and gender studies classes, and then just being totally floored by Moraga's poem, For the Color of My Mother, and her essay, La Huera, which included her descriptions of being uh, of mixed racial and cultural parentage. And in her case, a Mexican mother and a white father. And I was totally taken aback by reading someone write about a world of experiences that, are, that appeared to track a lot of what I found confusing and frustrating and also affirming in my own childhood and young adulthood um, as, a, as a child of a Panamanian mother and a white father. And so later, um, after I ended up majoring in philosophy, um, and in my senior year of undergrad, I remember sitting on the floor of the library and finding this peculiar little book titled Singing in the Fire. Um, mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. a book about women philosophers describing their experiences in the profession. Um, and it was there that I, you know, learned about Linda Martín Alcoff and Ophelia Schuta. Um, And then through Linda's work, um, a fellow Panamanian American feminist philosopher, um, I also found another author whose writings and ideas on race, gender, and, and forms of injustice seemed to kind of track some of my own sensibilities. Um, and I knew I wanted to work with Latina and Latin American feminist philosophers around that time. And I was really fortunate to go work um, with the prolific Cuban-American feminist philosopher Ofelia Schuta at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Um, and there, Ofelia really allowed me to conduct independent research on Ansaldúa. And I took classes with Ofelia on Latin American philosophy and also on Nietzsche and kind of also beginning around my second year of grad school I started regularly attending um the round table on Latina feminism Um, Which was organized annually by Mariana Ortega, who's another Central American feminist philosopher, who's been, you know, who's been and continues to be pivotal, pivotal in my life and career. So I think it was largely through Mariana and Ophelia's mentorship that during grad school, I started taking Ansel Dua's work pretty seriously. And This was true not only due to the leading Latina and Latin American philosophers in my life, but also um, due to my work also with the Latin American and Caribbean historian at the time, Adriana Novoa, who I continue to work with closely today. And um, as a historian, Adriana has had plenty of criticisms of Anzaldúa, um, but she also helped me, I think, foster a love and appreciation for cultural history. And I see that Mm -hmm. as an important facet of some of the work that I continue to do today. So... Just, just thinking now the themes from this book in particular, I started um, exploring strands of collective agency within Anthal Dua's work, at, as I mentioned, at the Roundtable on Latina Feminism. Um, which is now called the Latina Latinx Feminisms Roundtable, and you can find it online if anybody wants to look it up. Um, and uh, and huge shout outs too to Mariana, who for now over ten years has been you know offering me guidance and friendship and um, and support on uh, specifically on, on reading Ansaldúa's work. So, and I think while Mariana's work um, explores existential and phenomenological dimensions of Ansaldúa's writing. Um, My own work um, is trying to model some of that same care um, for Latina feminist philosophy uh, in the same way that Mariana does in her life and work. Um, And so it was probably back in 2009 or 2010 that I began to to work through some ideas, specifically on Anzaldúa's framings of autobiography. Um, and I think it was that space at the roundtable that Mariana orchestrated every year, um, including the many friends and researchers and activists that I met there that really made this, this book possible. Um, and then later in 2011, um, when I transferred to Vanderbilt for my PhD, um, where you and I met, <laughs> um, and I began working with Jose Medina, um, I wrote a chapter of my dissertation with him on Saldua. and the dissertation um, was on what I was calling at the time racial interpolation, um, which was working through some communicative dynamics of feminist metaethics and epistemology. Um, and Jose's work on race and gender within epistemology was really formative for me. Um, and I should also kind of say that I had been reading feminist metaethics and epistemology since I was in undergrad, but um, and I worked with this really... Um, kind British philosopher as an undergrad who, although he didn't specialize in feminist philosophy, his name was Dan Calcutt, um, he agreed to take me on for a project in my senior year on issues regarding the metaphysics of race and gender. So I was reading like mm-hmm. a lot of Sally Haslinger, um, and my supervisor was a researcher on moral skepticism and the work of Bernard Williams, so a lot of my thinking was starting to focus on meta like, metaethical and metaphysical questions regarding moral agents, um, including um, considerations of moral agents in this more socially an existentially complex sense. I think people like Linda Alcoff, Jose Medina, other folks are really working on. So I feel like in some ways, I'm still trying to grapple with some of those questions. So how and how and why are we as socially and culturally and historically shaped beings morally accountable to one another? How do we strive and struggle? Um, And what can we learn about ourselves and the world around us by answering those questions? So I think that's kind of what really brought me here.
1: Yeah, and your your book asks this question quite early on about um, how do we hold ourselves or other selves accountable for harms or pain that we, they might cause and retain our multiplicity in the process. And I hear a lot of the threads of what you were just talking about sort of uh, crystallize in that question. And um, it's that question's not just about uh, when we think about agency, how we resist the sort of individuation fragmentation um, that's so tempting and hegemonic, but also how it, our are thinking about agency can serve coalitional revaluation and transformation. Um, and so let's talk. let's start talking about how Anzaldua as a theorist allows you to do that work. And, um, and one of the things I want to ask you about is it, is it partially because she has such great readers like Lugones um, <laughs> that allows you to do, do the work with her?
0: Yeah, uh, so, yeah, thanks for picking up on this. Um, I do think, um, so I agree, yeah, I think facets of individualism and individuation have really shaped a lot of um, forms of contemporary moral, legal, social, and political theory um, in ways that these tropes and background assumptions sometimes become an obstacle for philosophers to be able to to address some of those questions that I mentioned a minute ago, um, and specifically about the kind of, complex socio-historical existences that we deal with in our moral ecosystems. Um, But as you rightly mentioned, um, or maybe suggested, um, so much of history and social theory tells us that the most beautiful and transformational political actions or artistic movements or forms of influential literary or scientific production happen collectively right? Through Mm -hmm. people power or through building trust and relationships or through collectively believing in a shared future that looks differently than the one that we're in. Um, and also I know that my own personal achievements and challenges and opportunities have been the result of that same socially rich and historic or, or set of socially rich and historically sedimented conditions, um, mm. including experiences of racial cultural difference or gender and sexual variants and, and relationships to knowledge production, um, including what I should or, um, am expected to know about myself and so on. So, um, So one of my claims in the book is that I think Anzaldúa knew all of this too um, and wrote extensively about the need for bridge building, border crossing, transgression, vulnerability, and the inevitable risks of causing harm to others while we strive for a better future. Um, And while I began... Some of this at the roundtable. I think it was actually back in 2018 um, when I visited the Anzaldua archives um, that some of my suspicions were confirmed and really started to come together for the book. Um, And what I found, um, and this is kind of thread, this will thread back to the reader's question, but what I found was that Ansaldúa was not only writing in public works like Borderlands La Frontera or Now Let Us Shift. About forms of impurity or multiplicity and coalitional movement, but she was also writing graduate term papers for her PhD program near the end of her life on questions of autobiography and multiplicitous forms of self knowledge for women of color writers. So she was writing about this, about narrating and describing oneself um, in these in these term papers, which I got I was able to read at the archive. So, so to me, this all tracked the kind of collective and collaborative nature of her at adult- a editorial works like This Bridge Call My Back and This Bridge We Call Home, which was published um, near the end of her life. Um, And it showed a sustained pattern of engagement with questions of how taking oneself serious or how knowing oneself and describing oneself was this collective undertaking. Um, And this includes considering Anseldua's own relevance as an author, philosopher, poet, educator, um, as a collective and collaborative process. And and this point was really brought home to me by the archivist of her collection at UT Austin, um, Carla Alvarez, who responded to my questions about whether the differential uses and applications of Duas' work beyond her own writings would have been something that she might have been concerned about or would have been, um, you know, uh, protective of. Um, and so uh, Carla, as someone who had cataloged and listened deeply to many of Duas' works, including was, you know, knew quite, you know, directly where I could find things in her, uh, video materials, for example, like very careful listener and, and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, very knowledgeable about those corpus. Um, she concluded, no, that, that we could see her work and her vast, in her vast collection of materials that she wasn't being proprietary about these possible uses of her work. And, And I think this included things that she might have disagreed with, um, and I think this reflects something about this collective nature of human relationality and creativity. Um, what Ansel Dua calls in Borderlands La Frontera the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, And I think this means we don't need canonization or purity or moral saints. Um, We need attempts to reckon with our multiplicity, our messiness, our mistakes, um, along with the things that we feel good about, the things that we want to own, the ways we like to see ourselves and others and so on. And so I think the book is really trying to honor that about her own work, um, and the way her readers have shaped critiques and extensions of her ideas um, as this processual, messy, sometimes painful, sometimes life-changing process. Um, and this, to me, appears um, as a much more honest account of our moral dimensionalities, um, and certainly more so than the flattening of our responsibilities and relationships to something like um, individual achievement or flaw.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This it seems like then the title to your book, Nosotros, this concept that comes from do is is a in some ways a very condensed form of what you were just talking about. Um and so will you talk about how nosotras as a concept um works in your development of an account of multiplicitous agency?
0: Yeah. Um So this was something that emerged in her later writings before her death in 2004. So I tracked it some in the late 90s and the 2000s. And so Nosotras um, I consider as this pivotal way to think through processes of identity formation, both collective and individual, and meaning-making practices, including writing, art, and political acts, for example. So um, in her late writings, she began to use this term nos slash otras, um, which is uh, a Castilian Spanish feminine pronoun um, for we, um, but she used it to refer to our processes of attempting to form notions of self and selfhood and otherness. So this and not that, here, not there, and so on. Um, But the slash or the rajadura, which she calls it, this crack, this cut, this tear that she places between nos, us, and otras, others, is a really purposive move, Um, Mm a purposive kind of visual cue as well on the page. Um, Although in an auditory sense, it's not so obvious, but um, it's a unsettling of that relationship between collective selves and and others. Um, And it's a way, I think, to mark the relational aspect of those forms of categorization and accountability. Um, So in the book, for example, I read Nosotras as um, a response in her later works to questions surrounding how her critics understood her reading of terms like mestizaje. Um, who, you know, they, they argued that she was uncritically adopting assimilationist policies from the Mexican nation state, for example. Um, but as I suggest or and as I suggest in the book, um, I read Nosotras as something of an admission. I think that sometimes in our attempts to define ourselves or describe our existence, we cause harm or draw boundaries that perpetuate things that harm others. Um, and this isn't a condemnation, and it doesn't mean that she isn't accountable to anyone. Um, in fact, I think Nosotras was a way of returning to things that she left underexplored within the concept of mestizaje, so um, political dimensions of Mexico and elsewhere, and its romanticized and institutionalized uh, um, uh, existence. So, um, specifically, I think she was trying to work through this notoriously messy and complicated processes of colonization, racialization, um, and transculturation, um, processes that shaped her own experiences in the Rio Grande Valley and that continued to inform her work as an activist, academic, and educator. And uh, regarding nosotras, I read Anseldou's understanding of these always messy, sometimes horrific processes of colonization, as requiring um, a careful look at one's own complicity within systems of harm and oppression as parts. um, And as some parts of the book discuss, you know, there can be on those terms, there can be real benefits um, uh, to perpetuating systems of oppression. And I think she and her readers like Lugones and Chela Sanuval, for example, were really tracking that existential and moral thread And so in this context, nosotras also means admitting that there's no safe place from which to locate oneself or act, um, no panacea that will soothe the threat of causing harm to another. Um, But rather than being an apologist for that risk, um, she starts developing these tools, like different neologisms and ways of writing and describing our relationships and ourselves and each other. And so These are then, I think, new ways to focus on the potential boundaries, cuts, conflicts and divisions that arise from our actions. Um, and in this way, we can understand our moral relationships as calling for ways to understand the generative and limiting forms of political, normative, and historical conditions that divide and unite us. Um, and this, as I suggest in the book, emerges from her use of the term nosotras in her later works, and then um, threads an important line through, through the book on how I, I take it that we can interpret agency in a more multiplicitous register.
1: Yeah, and this, you give this great overview of the way that Anzaldúa rejects models of agency that rely on insularity, isolationism, individualism, and imperialism. Those are each of those terms you really dig into. Um, And you talk instead about her developing a model of um, agency as shared interaction, distribution, interdependency, and coalition and as you as you were already suggesting and what you just said that um that she has practices of writing and especially self writing that help us see this model and maybe I, one of the things i've always struck by when i read on salto is the way that um her text performs what she's telling mm-hmm. you about and it makes your brain perform it so if she's switching from spanish to mm-hmm. english and to spanish and then poetry to prose and then giving you a little story about going through her backpack and then coming back to <laughs> theorizing something. Yes. Um, I yes. love that she like keeps the, is it the eyeliner that she keeps, right? It's yes. like the, um, or maybe it's an eyebrow pencil, but right. Like the things that, the way that she displaces you in her own text, mm-hmm. um, it works on you. It's clear she's doing work through the writing. So um, how does this, how does, how does she model this, I guess, agency through something like self-writing
0: yeah. Um, well one concept that I kind of developed from her work, this is a term she used, was auto historia teoria. Um, and I think I I started really paying attention to this as one of the first ways of interrogating this kind of multiplicitous um, and like embodied relationality that you were just describing. And I and I think I also though think that she does this through terms like border arte. Um, and mm. then uh, perhaps elsewhere so uh, just as a quick shout out so Kelly Zaytun, another um, uh, uh, reader of Ansel Dua who shows up in the book and is doing fantastic work um, she's got a book coming out um, on Ansel Dua's concept of la Nawala and shapeshifting as another example mm. um, so that I think that's coming out in the next year um, at with the University of Illinois press so so stay tuned for that. but sh- so I think there's also there's other ways to read these these kinds of um, Um, tools in her, or practices in her work. So, but without the Historia Teoria, the idea basically refers to something like a genre of um, self-writing, autobiography, uh, or self-description that theorizes... Um, while it endeavors to develop a personal or collective narrative. Um, and, and while Anzaldu offers this name, Alto Historia Teoria, I think there are also lots of other names for this literary practice. And, and particularly, I, I'm interested in, in a number of them, but um, a lot of them taken up by authors of color who I think are engaging in political theory through the practice of self-description. So, um, you know, you might want to think here of, like, Critical Fabulation by Sadia Hartman, or oh. Biomythography by Audrey Lorde, um, mm-hmm. uh, Asada Shakur's Autobiography has been read as another example of this by by Margot Perkins or um, also um, Laguna Pueblo author Leslie Marmon Silco's works like Storyteller might be considered further examples of this kind of practice so but what's what's really beautiful about this practice is that it takes the most seemingly intimate act of self description and self narration as this invitation to others to find themselves or not um, within that description or story Um, and so it's an inward looking act practice that relies on being able to be, um, you know, appreciated or understood or felt by others. Um, and, and then, and as an offering to others of oneself, which is a kind of vulnerability. Um, and this was what um, Ansel Dua was writing about in essays like To Queer the Writer. Um, and in her term, as I mentioned, her term papers on autobiography. Um, and so I think and especially in those term papers, um, she's really kind of pushing back against this idea of, like, this self-aggrandizing perception that people have of the traditional memoir or, like, Doris Summer's uh, work on the foundational fictions by notorious Latin American statesmen or political leaders and and, like, that gendered language is intentional there, that there was people like Jose Vasconcelos or others who were doing this kind of um, biographical work, autobiographical work. Um, but what Ansel do is exploring is that I think for many women of color, um, uh, the task of self-writing and self-narration is immensely risky. Um, and it's in terms of this threat of doubt, denial, and Maybe simple indifference from from others. And I think with that risk comes this opening for others to find themselves and to chart their social worlds through the stories and the struggles and the joys of another person's self description. And this is I don't think this is a demand for like kind of perfect isomorphism or like the simple Mm. form of appropriation of another person. But I think it's often like Ansel poems and essays, this invitation to look and to feel and to orient oneself from that story or or narration um, or fragment in order to better understand how we do or don't relate. Um, And as she says, we read ourselves as readers, or we we should read ourselves as readers, as being one who is being invited or being refused at the door. Um, And this is a kind of an attempt to locate where and how um, we may or may not identify with the self-narration of another. And so... um, so th- I don't think this idea is confined to Anzaldua's description of Alto Historia Teoria. So in the chapter, I also work through um, <clears throat> some of her readers. So Maria Lugones um, extends this through her notion of world traveling, um, but also uh, Stephanie rivera uh, another reader of Anzaldua and Adir, uh, Latina feminist philosopher colleague of mine for the roundtable, and um, also writes about this idea in terms of like the orienting capacity of language. So to situate ourselves within another person's embodied movements, um, including their speech patterns or gestures or accents or posturing and so on. Um, and then also uh, Monique Roloffs, who's another roundtable um, participant and and colleague, um, considers this a kind of interpolative movement occurring beyond human linguistic acts. So this kind of goes back to what you're saying about, you know, the, the, the object, Orientation. So, and I think um, for Roloffs, this is being found in Ansaldúa's descriptions of material objects. Um, so, mm. I think all of these philosophers exemplify what Ansaldúa described as this term nepantleras, um, which is another neologism that she uses to refer to those who kind of dwell in those slashes, cracks, and relational aspects of identity, embodiment, temporality, or normativity. Um, and their work, as I noted in the book, I think brings out new balances to that task of locating oneself in relation to another. So be that in another story or in their their body in relation to mine um, or in relation to the pen and the, or the keyboard that I happen to be touching. So, so um, lastly, I also think that um, Anseldou's notion of Nepantletas um, picked up on something that authors writing on Nawa metaphysics, like Jim Maffey, um, have considered something like the, the term Nepantla. So this classical Nahuatl term for a sense of mutual or reciprocal abundance. Um, and so this okay. is a kind of a possibility for recognizing our mutual relations as abundantly betwixt, he says, abundantly betwixt and between, um, which I love. Um, and it is something that I think Anzaldu was deeply aware of and and perhaps trying to kind of thread out through her use of terms like nepantleras auto historia teoria
1: border arte, and so on yeah no i'm struck by mm-hmm. the autohistoria teoria is a practice and then nepantleras as like an agentic position i mm-hmm. guess and so it's sort of like she's giving us all right she's like it, as you're describing like giving so much language right and giving so many approaches and and different ways to try to think about um, to think about the messiness um, yeah. and its its p- potential <laughs> um, yeah.
0: yeah and navigate well, it
1: the, yeah and now yeah yeah that's right that's really important um, that's right well and so and so this goes I think to this concept of ambivalence which readers of Anzaldúa will know is is a hugely important theme in her work. Um, and you're interested in in agential ambivalence, right? So this navigation, um, and particularly in the face of systemic oppression, um, mm-hmm. but also its generative possibilities. And so you really ground that um, in this conversation about insurrectionist ethics that's been taking place in philosophy for a minute. And mm-hmm. then you... Bring that conversation back to Anzaldúa via Lugones. So, will you talk to us about this insurrectionist ethics and how you see um, what the what's generated out of this connection to Anzaldúa?
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, ambivalence is a huge theme in Anseldua's work. Um, and, uh, the way she describes the borderlands and experiences of conflicts or what she calls los choques, the clashes between different worlds, um, brought me to this idea of considering her work as kind of blurring, you know, I think a lot of people as blurring clear boundaries within our moral ecologies. Um, mm-hmm. So in this sense, I want to link Anseldúa's work explicitly with writings, or in this chapter, I was trying to think through Anseldúa's work um, in relation to writings and moral philosophy, um, but with work within moral philosophy that I think was more attuned um, you know, to the conditions of like, racialized and cultural dimensions of existence, including those clashes, the strife, the struggle. Um, and the, the joy, the beauty, the affirmation, right? Um, so mm-hmm. f- from this, I turned to um, Insurrectionist Ethics, um, which is a framework developed by Leonard Harris in the early 2000s, um, uh, and specifically, uh, Harris's work starts out with this stance, which like at first glance might seem to lack the sense of amb- ambivalence, but it's really interesting the kind of moves he makes in this piece and elsewhere. But um, namely, he's addressing US pragmatists um, who were and are, I think, among his interlocutors, um, uh, among the, the, the topics and figures that he works on. Um, and he was addressing them to argue that um, that resistance to slavery by enslaved peoples through insurrectionist acts against slaveholders and their oppressors needs to be framed as morally meritorious. So he's saying, like, you know, this is an important starting point um, for, for moral philosophy because yeah. he's basically yeah. telling all the white pragmatists and moral theorists in philosophy that, they should ar- that, they, that given that they should argue that slavery is morally condemnable, the response is then to figure out a way to make resistance to slavery morally praiseworthy. So like, which, which I think few moral theorists and pragmatists had really done. And he's really calling to that attention to that. So in this, um, I see Harris is pointing to one of these strong um, normative metaphilosophical issues, which is this frequent um, idealization or outright neglect of these kinds of racial realities of black peoples and other people of color. So, um, but interestingly, um, unlike moral absolutes, Um, Harris is also the leading scholar on the Harlem Renaissance philosopher, Elaine Leroy Locke. Um, And he really, I mean, elsewhere in his work and and even in that text, he appears to follow um, and take quite seriously Locke's criticisms of moral absolutes, including in his writings on anti-Black racism, including in Harris's writings on anti-Black racism and on processes of racialization and acculturation. So I think this means that the contingent Yet materially real conditions of racism, including its horrific manifestations through the transatlantic slave trade, um, should be engaged by moral theorists, including this moral imperative to resist those conditions and seek to overturn them. Um, and there's a lot to say about Harris's work, and I've just uh, published another piece for the um, inaugural issue of the Journal of Philosophy of Disability. Um, on Harris's relevance for philosophy of disability. Um, but but that was really a topic that I explored more fully after finishing the book. But, it, but in, in Nosotras, um, Harris's writings on insurrectionist ethics is put into conversation with, with key insights from Black feminist philosophy and from Latina feminist philosophy. So in particular, I'm turning to a really great reply to Harris's insurrectionist ethics by Christy Dotson, in which he traces the contours of how to locate the resistant dimensions of differing uh, acts performed by black women under conditions of enslavement. So what Dotson's work reveals, I think, is that Harris's call for an insurrectionist moral theory also entails an epistemic or a generative demand to locate the differential forms of harm that any given agent may face. Um, and this means grappling with those cases in which it's not quite clear how or whether a given agent is resisting harm or perhaps operating under some other guiding motive. And so in the book, I'm actually less concerned with like a metaphysical claim regarding the like, quote unquote actual intentions of a given agent, but rather the kind of Possible interpretive relations, including, if available, the agent's own account of their mor- motivations, but but also the constellation of reconstructions and stories that that we can create to explain a given set of actions or behaviors and so on. So it's here that I think I turn to to another reader of Ansel Du'a, Marie Lugones, and her account of liberatory syllogisms, um, and I and I trace from Lugones's like her. 1978 dissertation project to her late yeah. de- decolonial writings. <laughs> it's so
1: deep archive, I love it. <laughs>
0: um, I, I trace this, like, her concerted philosophical efforts to examine these same kinds of agential reconstructions for actions. Um, um, and so in this sense, I read Dotson's addition to Harris's moral theorizing, which is this normative call to what, what Dotson describes as, like, better to better approximate the bonds of one's oppression. Um, And and so I I see Lugones as like really um, a further extension of that call um, in in moral theorizing. And so in this way, um, I read Lugones' account of the dispersion of what she calls this kind of dispersion of intentionality between subjects rather than in them. Um, which again is trying to get rid of this like wh- where is the intentionality? Is it in you? Is it in me? You know, um, I, I think as a way, and I, I read this like dispersion of intentionality between subjects as a way to preserve some kernels that then I trace back as being embedded within Ansel Dua's work. That in this kind of the previous chapter is kind of working through that. Which are these these kernels are like resisting in the individualism, this isolationism that like you know my my motives and my uh, self understandings are privately mine. This insularism that, you know, is, uh, you know, kind of keeping me from others and distancing me. And then this kind of imperial attitude that, you know, the kind of arrogant perception or that my, that, that the self is the kind of center of value and, and meaning. So, so I think this can be seen in Lugones' writings on world traveling on arrogant perception on ontological pluralism. And I think even, and I don't do this as much in the book, but even in the kind of the distinction she draws between light side and dark side, um, in her late decolonial writings, um, but I think she's looking for ways to reinterpret history, to reinterpret our interpersonal relationships and our institutional relationships, which all perhaps surprisingly have some of these like really cool glimmers in the dissertation. Although like in these covert ways, which is really fascinating. Um, and again, speaks to institutional dynamics of our own practice in philosophy. Um, totally. But, but she does these, I think um, as a ways like this kind of reinterpreted practice to tr- to help build practical accounts that allow us to develop stronger relationships um, and to through through our ability to kind of understand and locate ourselves across difference and differential divide. So I, I think this is another kind of moral border crossing um, or a kind of this mutually abundant set of ways to reconceive our relationalities as maybe nepantleras. Um, and I want to read this as another manifestation of the insights that Duis shared through this framing of nosotras. Um, and as a final caveat um, just to be clear, I don't think this is like a, a, um, this is not like a kind of open vulnerability to all forms of relationality. And I, and I make this clear in the book, because I think just kind of shifting back to Harris, I think the moral task of resistance to oppression, um, demarcates these kind of seemingly harmful from seemingly non-harmful options for actions and interpretations of action. But yet those contingent relations to the differential vulnerabilities is how Ansel Dua appears to be tracking these kinds of open wounds and deep forms of ambivalence that occur through this this idea of nosotras, through making these kinds of, you know, distinctions between us and them and through through self and other and so on. So I think that was there's there's a there's a politicized kind of call to to understand in the last part of the chapter, which is these um, four different um, uh, modalities of agency that I try to sh- work through to show like, you know, when, when we seek to, 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 to end toxic relationships, or when we seek to to, to try to um, prevent, like to try to, you know, uh, to try to, to, to pause or to, to stop forms of relationality that are going to be potentially harmful, that there's room for that within this kind of framing of, this kind of normative framing and historicized and contextualized relationship of conception of agency. So I think that the last section of the chapter is really trying to show that the positionality, um, that like this chapter is, I think, trying to do some of this meta ethical theorizing about agency, but in a register that's attuned to these material realities of gender, race, culture, and positionality within those material terms.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, shifting, but not not leaving any of these themes, actually, you you track Enzaldu's importance for disability theory, um, and partially what you're doing, I think, is um, this is like contextualizing and historicizing her work on agency. But you also you also show how her understanding of multiple citizen agency can support disability justice projects, um, and particularly through her retelling of the story of. Koyo Shaki, is that even close? Is that, that decently? Sounds right. Koyo Shaki, okay. yeah. Koyo Shaki. Um, and it, you just, you spend this wonderful time reinterpreting that story um, it, to show these connections to disability justice um, projects. So um, how does the story help you do this work?
0: Um, yeah, so Ansel Dua turned to this story of Koyo Shaoki, who's um, a, a divine feminine uh, being of sorts within an, an ancient Mechika origin story of the moon. Um, to consider relationships with identity, I think, and, and the body, and so in particular, and I've actually started to pick up on this elsewhere in her work. Um, her poem "Holy Relics," for example, discusses the disinterment and dismemberment of Saint Teresa of Avila. Um, oh, and I've got cool. a, I've got a chapter coming out in, in in a new anthology on disability and American philosophies, um, edited by Daniel Brunson and Nate Jackson, on this very topic and on that poem. But so cool. what I'm tra- what I'm tracking is like Anselmo seemed quite interested in stories of dismemberment, of being Uh, torn apart, being reconfigured, and and then being reconfigured in relation to that violence. Um, And so Koya story is one of these dismemberment stories, like that of a protective daughter being torn limb from limb by her brother, um, and her brother was this divine figure of war. And so Koya head, as a version of the story goes, becomes the moon, and her remaining body parts are then tossed down the hill where the story takes place. And there's a lot to say about like the specific colonial history of the interpretations of this story, including the sixteenth century Florentine codex. Um, and there's interesting work that I think, rereads this story for its relevance for embodied relations to things like menstruation and generation, which I also discuss in the book. Um, But for now, what I wanted to say is that um, I think as I've been tracking elsewhere in her work, these themes of embodied dislocation, fracturing, being torn apart, were much more than metaphors for Ansel Dua. I mean, in particular, her readers who are attuned to disability, like Suzanne Boss, Lea Lakshmi Piepsina Samarasina, Julie Minich, um, Aurora Levins Morales, um, and, and, and a number of others, I think have shown that Ansel was trying to theorize a number of relationships to very real forms of physical pain, chronic illness medical intervention and societal neglect and blame and so for example we know that she died in 2004 due to complications related to type 1 diabetes we know that she described her own life as being shaped by that diagnosis and her embodied experience of the diabetes we also know that she writes about the hysterectomy she underwent at age 38 using fairly graphic terms and that she dealt with an endocrine condition her entire life that shaped her experiences of gender sexuality and bodily awareness Aside from these diagnostic relationships to pain and illness, though, she was also acutely aware of forms of societal divestment, bodily shame, and overcoming narratives, all of which directly impact disabled people, as well as people whose lives, while perhaps not identifying as disabled, have been marked by debilitating or toxic conditions. And this last part was really important to me. So this reading of Koya Shauke that she offers in her work seems to speak to something broader than this individual identification. Um, mm. So what she's working toward is this interdependent understanding of bodily knowledge. I think that could reframe a dichotomy between, between disability and, and ability. And I think this is something that folks in disability justice while politically ado- adopting terms, like strategically, importantly politically adopting terms like disability justice, are also utilizing as a praxis among oppressed communities to address address the variety of ways in which we understand ourselves and our embodied differences. And so I think this is to say like disability justice activists like Aurora Levins Morales, for example, um, suggest that our bodies, including our pains, illnesses, sensitivities, and vulnerabilities actually provide us with a map we can follow to understand the webs of relations that we're in. And this includes mapping out toxic work conditions, living conditions, intergenerational forms of violence, or how, for example, most medical services are seldom equipped to address issues of systemic racism, classism, and colonization. So in in this sense, I'm so do is writings on dismemberment and what she calls this Koya and then the other term is this Koya Shaoki imperative, um, which is a kind of drive or an attempt to put things back together after violent fragmentation, that this is this is occurring all while knowing that wholeness and finality is impossible, but it's kind of this this process of self and group constitution. And I think this is part of what this the, the, the main theme of the book, this relational nosotras dynamic, is attempting to reconfigure um, and then try something out for oneself and one perhaps one's community um, and maybe perhaps for others. Um, but also knowing that that process is continual. It's going to require regrouping. It's going to require um uh reconfiguring those relations and so i think like that's that's one key way in which i think she's she's really doing something that's relevant for a disability justice project
1: yeah and i have to say that reading that chapter under current conditions um mm-hmm. it felt if it gave me a feeling like oh this is somebody who can help us understand how we're going to pick up the pieces of what's happening right now yeah. um You know, like it was, it felt, you probably wrote it pre-pandemic. Yeah, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It felt, it's it's extremely timely (laughs) to the pandemic. Um, Yeah. So um, in your last chapter, you work through some really important critiques, um, particularly of Anzaldua's use of the concept of mestizaje and particularly from within trans and indigenous scholarship. Um, and so, and I, I saw you sort of navigating those critiques, really like laying them out, giving them space, really honoring, I think, the, those critical pathways and, and talking with them, opening a conversation, particularly through the con- concepts of nosotras and nepantleras. Um, and so, and, and the thing i saw you trying to do the the like work of the chapter i thought was like coalitional possibilities like how do we not yeah. shut down these critiques and not make everything the same right yeah. but yeah. to build the coalitions so will you talk about you know navigating those critiques through those concepts
0: yeah absolutely so um, so one thing I noticed, and that I now know that other trans Latinx authors, um, and it's another shout out, um, Francisco Francisco Galarte, um, who I had the honor of, of having as a guest speaker in my grad seminar last year, um, he mentioned the same point. Um, also, his new book, Brown Transfigurations, is fantastic, would highly recommend it. It's also, uh, there's an, also an interview with New Books Network with the LGBTQ Plus Studies um, uh, series. So I uh, would highly recommend checking out Francisco Galarte's um, interview. But so one thing that I know he and I and other folks have noticed is that Ansel Dua has been cited and discussed by trans authors since, at, since the late 1980s. So when Borderlands La Frontera was first coming out, and when important works within Anglophone trans studies like Sandy Stone's The Empire Strikes Back um, were being published as well. So, for example, like Sandy Stone cites Anseldou's notion of, of the new mestiza as an as what she calls this illegible subject that resonates with with some of the claims that Stone's making about trans subjects. And so, well, I definitely think that a full analysis of. Like Sandy Stone's footnote is is warranted and would be great to have out there. What what I wanted to track in this chapter were some of the ways in which trans authors have discussed Ansaldúa's work and whether they contended with some of the criticisms that she received during her lifetime, specifically for her use of concepts like mestizaje. So the chapter is really working out these critiques of mestizaje, right, um, and the relevance for for what what I call in the chapter and what other folks like Dean Spade and others call this kind of Critical trans politics um, that is that is in the service of critiquing um, settler colonialism, which is which is I think what a task that some of her critics, um, Anselm Duas critics, really argue that her conception of the of the new mestiza obstructed in various ways. So that she she really wasn't attuned to how she may have been perpetuating um, uh, settler colonial um, uh, frameworks and and practices and so on. So. So the chapter works through various strands of critique of Ansel Dua, as you mentioned, um, and a- as the previous chapter does to some extent on discussions of disability. Um, and I also turned to the work of, of a number of authors, but including folks like Talia Betcher, um, Deborah Miranda of the Ohlone, Costanoan and Esalen Nation, and a number of other indigenous and Chicana authors to begin doing the kind of deep contextualizing of Ansel Dua's views about the term like mestiza consciousness. So I want to kind of figure out what, what's happening with the critiques and with their, their their relevance for now, this critical trans politics, um, and also you know what's you know what can we how do we kind of build from these critical. Um, Perspectives. So, so what this means is not that everyone should embrace mestizaje or use her, her, you know, conception of mestiza consciousness within trans critique or elsewhere. That's not. There's no prescription there for that. Um, nor, nor does I do I think it would be something that that we find supported in her own work, later work. But I think it means seeking to kind of understand the historiographical and material conditions that Ansaldúa was responding to through her use of these terms, uh, and then moving forward with our own critical projects that I think are. Trying to be both trans affirming and seeking to dismantle settler colonialism. So, in this sense, what I really love from, say, someone like Talia Betcher's work um, is that as a close reader of Maria Lugones' writings, Betcher sought trans politics to underscore the ways in which we might need to reconfigure the terms through which gender oppression impacts the lives of trans people and so betcha's reframing of what she calls reality enforcement um can be read and another quick shout out will be directly argued in her new forthcoming book which should be out soon and i've seen a draft of it it's going to be really great um which yeah yes um and uh, which So she calls this reality enforcement. I think it can be read as a colonial form of gender oppression. And in this right. sense, Betcher, as a white Canadian trans settler, attempts to build a framework to reconceive the oppression and harm from this multiplicitous lens that understands that indigenous peoples, black peoples, migrants, and a number of other people of color are struggling against demands that our bodies pose threats to others, that we're mere pretenders or deceivers in some way, or that we should be exposed to some further Underlying settler reality of proper gender, sexual, and sex norms. So, so Betcher's theoretical framing for this is Lugones's ontological pluralism, and I think she's also explicit that reality enforcement is a form of racialized gender violence. And so, I think this leaves intact the kind of complicated and historically nuanced relationship between race and gender that both Lugones and Anselduo were trying to understand, but albeit through sometimes flawed and painfully resonant terms like mestizaje and, and, and new tribalism. For Example is another one in Ansaldúa. So, so to be clear, I don't want to be an apologist for Franzaldua, but I do want to read her in her fullness, as flawed, as beautiful, and as you know, as brilliant. And so, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? So, in in yeah. this, her terms like nosotras, I think bring back into view some some crucial points that that um, one of her readers as well, Deborah Miranda, raises and describes as being found in Ansaldúa's writings on mestizaje. So, so Miranda. As a self-described mixed-blood, two-spirit member of the Ohlone, Kosano, and nation, notes that what Ansel Dua's work calls for, what I'm threading out as no otras, is this attentive, contextual, and historically informed way of transgressing norms and understanding difference. For Miranda, this means to explicitly acknowledge and examine how native peoples are continually subject to U.S. settler colonization in ways that differ from U.S. Chicanx peoples. So reservation systems and blood quantum, the struggle uh, for resources and land rights that require this paternalistic and degrading relationship to the settler state, um, and the primitivization and ag- romanticization that Native peoples face daily and across various institutional settings. But, so these experiences are not identical nor shared across U.S. Chicanx pop- populations. You know, and although we could maybe argue that there are overlaps in some ways. But so Miranda's like rightly pointing to these differences and here what Miranda locates through what she calls Mestiza, she, Miranda calls these Anzaldu's notion of Mestiza acts um, and I build then through this notion of the slash the rajadura, the cut that appears between Chicanx communities and indigenous communities. So between settler, including things like the settler state impositions of borders and legal jurisdictions, both Mexico and the US, U.S. Um, as, as this kind of way of practicing this enactment of the practice of nosotros, nosotras. So again, the vision isn't something like perfect harmony or this ever unfolding process. Or it's not that this is a perfect harmony, but it's it's an ever unfolding process of seeking to kind of tarry with those differences and to eradicate the harms of settler colonial violence. As as Anzal Dua also notes in the beginnings of Borderlands La Frontera, with with things like the land is and always will be indigenous. But so this is a pathway that I think think that this, I think, is a pathway that critical trans theorists can pick up on Ansel Dua's work that I think would avoid the kind of reifying settler borders and maybe subjectless, apolitical conceptions of multiplicity. So this is a positioning and a solidarity with the sovereignty of indigenous nations and the bodily sovereignty of indigenous peoples as a constitutive part of a crit- critical trans politics. So a kind of updated way to read Ansaldúa's concept of nosotras as, as relevant now for, for trans critique.
1: Yeah, and it just, what you were just saying um, seems, I think, comes really together in this concept you give us in the conclusion, this nosotrekis um which i saw as sort of like the gift of the conclusion you give us this this concept to take forward with us um and so i'm interested in how you hope we take up um that concept the nosotrekies
0: yeah so so thanks so, so first i want to fully acknowledge the lack of any aesthetically pleasing features to this term so noso <laughs> yeah right i mean
1: difficult it was i was yes, like okay i'm going to i'm going to try to get this right yeah. It's difficult
0: in a lot of languages. So, nosotrequis mm-hmm. is hard to pronounce. It's somewhat jarring in the mouth, the ear, the eye. Um, but, but really, I, I, I wanted to jump in in the conclusion of the book that. Uh, that also do is theoretical terms like the Koya imperative, Imperative, historia Teoria, they, they carried with them these somewhat uncomfortable fits, kind of misfit features, feminized, um, often feminized, bringing Nahuatl Spanish, English words into context, cutting them up, like you were mentioning this earlier, like writing unapologetically with slang and Spanglish l- terms, so yeah, using non-standard spellings, I mean, lots of non-standard spellings. So, so this, I think, really exemplified an experimental quality of her play with language. Um, Not a finality, not an insistence, but this really experimental quality of her, 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 her understanding of the materiality of language. And so how we feel when we hear or read or sign words, what our mouths and hands feel like when we create language and what it means to hear someone say, pronounce your name correctly, for example. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: what she was think I think what she was thinking about, I think she was thinking about all that, like living that, playing with that. And then sometimes in helpful ways and in sometimes in ways it didn't work out for various reasons. So so the term for me, so the term, I think Nosotrekis also echoes Anzaldúa's call through Nosotras to look at our boundaries, divisions and differences as a way to understand our relationalities. And it just moves the term more explicitly back into this kind of zone of gender variance, which I also think Anseldua worked on in various ways throughout her life. But but in this sense, given my own ambivalent, ambivalent relationship to like binary gender pronouns, I wanted to end the book on this possibility for further play, for the discomfort of language and the misfit character of like, really what many of us feel and live. So for example, terms like Latinx are being debated as exclusionary, elitist, imperialist, and so on. And I discuss this in the book a bit. But what I want to say is that I hardly find the trans and non-binary Latinx and Chicanx people in my life who use this term as a self-descriptor to actually embody those qualities, imperialist, elitist, exclusionary. Like more often than not, I find that a lot of us are trying words out Trying to explain our relationships to our own bodies and the people who care about us in these bodies, like using lots of different words, depending on which context we're in and who we're with, with that not being purists, when we're trying to explain ourselves in multiple tongues, accepting mistakes, knowing that people sometimes get things wrong when addressing or acknowledging us or each other, and then trying to figure out how we can continue to live with these mistakes and build relationships or how we can sometimes need to draw boundaries, right, and lift up the, you know, kind of like draw some drawbridges up um, when these relationships are no longer sustainable. So this is, this is how I find the praxis of Nosotrekis in my life, like this constant reconfiguration of positionalities, of contextualizations of our actions and others. And I think this is a tool for survival. I think it's a tool for trying to make it, to support each other, to learn how to love ourselves, and then to fight like hell when, when members of our community need it. So I I think that's kind of where the idea comes from
1: yeah it's such a gift it's a in all its difficulties it's such a gift <laughs> um all right well so what are you working on now
0: oh okay so yeah so like right now i've been well for the past <laughs> few years i've really been working a lot on the relationship between and this is, may seem like a detour but i'll thread it back in a second um uh, between, I've been looking at the relationship between punishment and health. And so what I've been calling in some of the the, this, the work I've been doing on this is like this kind of history of what I've called carceral medicine. Um, mm. And so the, the, the this first book, Nosotras, I think was this deeply existential and like figure specific book in some ways. Um, and it's a personal book for me in a lot of ways. But the second book, I think, is, is more about kind of institutional development, political histories, and contextualization of patterns of harm, specifically against incarcerated peoples in their communities. And so, like, you and I know each other through some of this work as well um, mm-hmm. and, and I think some of this work on moral ambivalences and nosotras um, is, as a demand to continue understanding our relational dynamics can also be part of you know, an abolitionist moral and political framework so like for example like looking for historical institutional and relational causes for conflict or considering criminalization as this messy process that creates all kinds of exceptions, ambivalences and mo- vulnerabilities so, so these are all I think abolitionist trajectories. And then in, and in the next you know, project, I think you know, the plan is to kind of work through some specifically abolitionist insights from Latinas and Chicanas. Um, and I found some really fantastic archival sources, um, not only in Anseldua, But also in other uh, Chicana feminists from the 70s and 80s that I think show this really careful commitment to thinking about incarcerated peoples and the conditions that lead to incarceration. And so I really want to study and write more on those connections and to build this kind of abolitionist framework of sorts from a Latinx uh, feminist angle. That's kind of the next step.
1: That's great. I can't wait to talk about that. Well, thank you so much for talking about nosotras with us today. And um this has just been great.
0: Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it was really fun.